Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Matt Sarah Blackbelt, who also trained extensively under John Danaher, Jason Rao. Jason is the grappler's grappler. For whatever reason, he seems to go under the general mainstream's radar. Within the professional community, Jason is well known for his uber-technical and very dangerous leg game. Although being sidelined by injury as of late, Jason is looking to make his comeback at the ADCC trials, and I would definitely consider him to be a very live contender who could take gold. In the episode, we talk about his days at Matt Serra's and his time with Danaher at Henzo's in the Blue Basement in NYC. We talk about his new academy, Vanguard, his injury, rehabilitation, mindset, ADCC lessons learned, and a whole lot more. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Yes, less than a dollar. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at forever white belt and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring, teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Jason Rao. Jason, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Adolfo. I appreciate it. You are a black belt under... Under Matt Sarah. Mr. Sarah. Yeah. Back in 2016, correct? Yes, I got my black belt February 16th of 2016, so it's it's almost been seven years now. You started in, what, 2010? Started in 2010. Actually, my 13-year anniversary just passed. So I started, I think it's been about 13 years. Pretty much never took any time off. I had a few knee surgeries, but... Been training pretty consistently the whole time. Can you tell me about Vanguard? So me and my partner, Nick Ronan, who's originally a student of mine now, he's a black belt in Matt Sarah as well. We're good friends. Uh, we, we opened this gym August 8th, we opened. So, you know, that's always kind of been my end game. You know, my end goal uh, is to eventually open a gym. And, you know, the opportunity kind of presented itself. Me and, me and Nick you know, agreed to partner together. And we were actually looking a little bit before covid couldn't find anything. Obviously, COVID <laughs> happened. Thankfully, we didn't do anything. But uh, Ooh, man, your timing but, fantastic. Yeah, man. yeah, right. Jeez. But yeah, so we found a space. It's out in Lake Grove on Long Island, which is in Suffolk County. It's been going great so far. We have, you know, I, I I've been teaching for Matt for such a long time. I've probably been teaching him for for him for ten years. So I had like a pretty decent following in the area. Mm-hmm. So you know, we had kind of students right away, and it's been going great so far. So it's awesome to be you know to have my own place. And it's been, it's been great. Your time at Sarah, can you talk about like your development there and sort of where you're at now? And how did you even learn to become like an academy owner? So I, I started you know, training at Matt, Matt Sarah's gym in, in East Meadow, which is on Long Island in 2010. And I actually got a job there fairly early on. So I got a mm-hmm. blue belt in about six or seven months and they offered me a desk job there. The, the guy who was currently working there he went on a tour in Iraq. He was in the military. And, and so they hired me to work the desk there. So I kind of got exposed to that pretty early on in my like jujitsu career, we'll say so. And 
you know, I worked a desk for about a year. Then I went back to school full time. So I stopped doing that. And Matt gave me a job teaching the afternoon classes as a purple belt. And so I've kind of always been at the academy since then. I taught for a few years and then I went back to working there full time a few years after that. So I've always just been around it and, uh, you know, was able to absorb a lot of information from, you know, you know, I was with Matt before he opened the what was the Levittown location, which is the bigger location that we ended up moving to. So I've kind of seen the progression. I've sold a bunch of people memberships, you know, hundreds and hundreds over the years. So I've I have like a good amount of experience doing that. And obviously, I've been teaching the whole time too. So it was kind of uh, I don't want to think it was an easy transition, but there's definitely some adjustments I had to make. But it, I kind of was doing. I kind of continue what I was already doing, but now for myself, instead of mm-hmm. having Matt as my boss. So it was kind of a, it was a smooth transition, I felt, for myself. So I, I'm assuming you started at Matt's and you were training originally in the gi, correct? Yes. Yeah, so there, there was definitely a, a pretty decent no gi emphasis when I first started, just because of mm. MMA. You know, Matt was still fighting at the time. Maybe he had a, he had his last fight, I think, 2010. So yeah. You know, it was his last year fighting when I, when I first started training. So there was emphasis on no gi, but mm. definitely probably until my black belt, I trained much more in the gi than I did no gi. Are you guys now exclusively no gi? At, uh, no, Vancouver? no. We have gi classes as well. Definitely more no gi heavy, but we have gi classes as well. Do you still consider yourself a professional grappler? Uh, yeah, definitely. Owner? I mean, so what we touched on earlier, like uh, I I had two knee surgeries in the past couple of years. So I've certainly competed, but definitely not as much as I wanted to. I spent Mm -hmm. a good amount of time in recovery and Mm -hmm. the the past few months opening the gym, definitely, you know, put the brakes on that a little bit, but I plan Mm -hmm. plan on doing the ADCC trials next year. I had done the trials in April this past year. So that's definitely on the agenda and for myself and a lot of my students as well. So that's a, that's going to be a big focus for us over the next, you know, nine months or so. I was wondering why I haven't heard your name as much in quite some time. Can you talk about these knee injuries or injury? Is it just uh, miles or was there like an acute issue or what? Yeah, both, both of them were, were acute issues. So I had two meniscus repairs done actually on the same knee. So it was the mm. same surgery. Uh, Nikki Ryan actually had me and him had it within the same week or so. This was 2021. So that was my last one. So typically they tell you like six months, but it's really, I, I felt like it was a year till you're really a hundred percent. So, so a lot yeah. of people, they have a meniscus tear and they get what's called a meniscectomy where they like kind of cut the piece out. So I actually had it stitched and sewn, which is, they say much better in the long term, in the, you know, better for your overall knee health because you're preserving that cartilage, that tissue, mm-hmm. that meniscus. But uh, in the short term, it's, it's a longer recovery. So I had two of those, one on the lateral meniscus, one on the medial meniscus. So I had one in 2019 and one in 2021. So that was not ideal. What makes a great jujitsu student? That's an interesting question. I think there's a, there's a few things. So at like someone that's a student, I think obviously their, their willingness to learn, their ability to work hard, attend classes, but or ask the right questions. But I think, I think the traits that make someone, I guess it's two different questions. What's, what makes someone a good student? What makes someone good at jiu-jitsu? You know, I think someone that's a good jiu-jitsu student is someone that's a good student in general. Someone that's like willing to learn is asking the instructor questions, is attempting to diagnose their their problems they're experiencing live training correctly, and is putting trust in their instructor that that instructor is showing them the right things and the right techniques and they're trying to apply those techniques in live training. So I think that that's what makes a good student, but like what makes somebody good at jiu-jitsu is not necessarily what, you know, no, I, if someone does those things, there's a good chance, assuming their instructors teaching them the right things, then there's a good instructor, 
there's a good chance they're going to progress in jujitsu. But I think what makes somebody good at jujitsu is like a unique ability to recognize patterns, really pattern recognition in all these intricate various positions we find ourselves in and be able to apply like a movement they learned in one position and apply it in multiple positions where that movement is applicable. So for example, like a new student who comes in, sees an armbar from guard, and then they like figure out in their head without being taught, like, wait, I can do this from out. I can do this from here. I can do this from here. And I think inherently that's what makes somebody good at jujitsu hmm. from a, from a technical perspective is being able to kind of decipher all these positions in their head and these like complex body positions of my arm is here, your leg is here, whatnot, and kind of recognize the patterns of those positions and then apply them in other situations. So I think that's what makes someone good at jujitsu. But then on top of being a good student, like recognizing, okay, I'm in this position. Like, I'm not really sure what to do. I'm trying to do this. Let me ask my instructor, hey, I'm running into this specific problem. How do you think I should progress from here? And the instructor gives you an answer. You work on that answer in live training and you kind of troubleshoot it. Hmm. You know, asking the right questions. Obviously, you have to train a lot. You have to come to class. You have to train in the w- right manner. You know, someone that's not always trying to win every match, but knows when they, they have to turn it on. Someone who's training with different training partners appropriately, you know, knowing that, okay, I'm 300 pounds. This person's 150 pounds. Obviously, I could probably smash them, but I'm going to get something out of this role with them. And I'm going to work my guard retention because they're a little bit faster than me. And it's going to help me work my leg work versus just playing your A game and crushing this person. So I think there's you know a, a few things, but I think what makes someone a good student doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be good at jiu-jitsu. That's what I'm kind of trying to say. Let's talk about the your PT a little bit. Can you talk about your road to recovery? So uh, I, was, I was going to physical therapy, usually three days a week. And I was going each time for about four to five months for the protocol for meniscus repair is six weeks on crutches. I didn't do that. I was walking around a little bit earlier, but, and then you're supposed to be in a locked brace that whole time. You're not supposed to bend past 90 degrees. So it's definitely, you know, it's not like as bad as an ACL, but it's definitely a, a pretty lengthy recovery process. So PT strengthening kind of standard exercises after six weeks, they start bending you. So, you know, nothing past 90 for the first six weeks, then they start laying on the table, they start bending the knee. That's when you start to kind of uh, make a little bit of progress more quickly, but it wasn't fun at all. It, it definitely sucked. I will say, um, definitely spent a lot of time watching footage or watching tape and matches. And, and I definitely don't feel like I missed a step coming back. Like once I started training again, I felt like I was as sharp as ever. I was teaching still a lot of the times, even though if I couldn't physically teach, I would be at the gym. I would still be teaching privates. I do a lot of private lessons. And mm. so like my head was definitely in in the game that entire time. So I felt like it was, you know, obviously sucked, but I don't feel like it was a huge inhibitor from me progressing in jujitsu. So you sort of touched on 2020 a bit and uh, the lockdowns and everything. How did you manage that time? At the time I was teaching. So Matt Sarah had two gyms at the time. I was teaching at one of those locations in a place called Levittown, which is on Long Island. And so we obviously shut down. I was, like many people, I was training in my friend's basement for that time. It was me and my partner, Nick, and our good friend, Steve. It was pretty much the three of us training, you know, for probably four or five months, you know, without anybody else for the most part, a few people here and there. Matt actually had the the gym. So the gym I was working at, Levittown, Matt had to close that location down. There's some issues with the landlord. So Matt consolidated all his, you know, all the students to the other gym, which was uh, at a different location. So when we opened back up, which was, I think, September, we were, you know, we we're at this one location. It used to be two separate locations. So in that sense, he closed out the gym, which was kind of unfortunate. You know, we lost a few students that, that lived closer to that spot, but 
until we opened, I was training kind of low key in my friend's basement. And then as the gym started to open back up, I went back to teaching. And we dealt with a lot of issues with, I mean, we're in New York. We dealt with a lot of issues with, you know, people calling the police on us. We had to lock the doors during training. We blacked out wow. the windows. We had the yeah, cops yeah. coming almost every night. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard stories like that, but oh, yeah. it was, uh, <laughs> actually it was funny. Once the election happened, it kind of all stopped. We I, were in, uh. Yeah, San Francisco in Northern California. So you can only imagine how that was. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So yeah, yeah so it, it was definitely. And then, you know, obviously opening a school was on my mind at the time because it was something I was considering prior to COVID and, you know, seeing all those restrictions and everything was definitely, you know, I got a little bit cold feet. Now, obviously, yeah. at this point, I'm saying it's not an issue, but that type of thing is not happening anymore. But going back to the knee for one minute here. So were you doing like band work, resistance work? As well, uh, water work? Uh, so or? there's a specific protocol for meniscus repair. At the strengthening phase of it, uh, yeah, doing band work, doing lateral strengthening exercises, like squat-type movements as well, mm -hmm. like once you hit mm -hmm. the... But, I mean, the, the strength training itself was, like, pretty standard, you know, stuff that you would see to strengthen, you know, the area around the knee and the muscles around it. Really, I feel like the more sensitive part of the, of the process was, like, those beginning stages where like the motions that you're not supposed to be doing and mm -hmm. properly getting this, the, the swelling down. And also um, the first thing they do is they straighten your leg. So I, I, like before this, I didn't realize this, but they actively straighten your leg because you could lose that extension wow. as well. So, so they're not doing anything in flexion right away. Cause that's, that's going to put pressure on the meniscus. But the first mm -hmm. thing they do is they actively straighten your leg. You do something called a quad set, which is because if you don't do this, you can kind of lose the ability to activate your quad for a while. So, you activate your quad and you practice straightening your leg. And that's in the first couple of weeks, but when you're like still on crutches, you can't move around at all. But th that was, you know, something that prior to that, like that was one of the most critical phases that you kind of get that quad activation back, you get full range of motion back with the extension. And then once you hit that six week mark, you move over into the deflection phase. And then about three months, they really focus on the strengthening and stuff like that. Like they're looking to get the full range of motion back work first, and then they focus on the strengthening. And then it's like pretty standard strength exercises that you would, you know, I'm not saying like a personal trainer could take over, but you know, the PT is less important at that point. You know, you really want them for that hands-on work at the beginning of the process. So let's talk about uh, Vanguard a little bit. I know you're relatively newish, but tell me what's unique about Vanguard. So I think in the New York area, I think we offer some of the best instruction around, some of the highest level instruction. Uh, we have kind of, uh, like me and Nick both have a background training at Hensley Gracie Academy for a long time. So we have that kind of that Danaher background, which I think is, is highly sought after. So we have that. We have a good base of students already. So like most new gyms, you know, instructor opens up and they have mostly new students, but we have a solid base of students who have been with me and Nick for a long time. And we offer a very professional aesthetic, professional atmosphere. So I think, I think a lot of gyms suffer from either like having really, really good training and then kind of on the business side of things, like maybe it's really dirty or ju it's just like, it doesn't feel like a professional clean space. Like, so we're almost going for that kind of AOJ. It doesn't look exactly like AOJ, but that AOJ vibe where you, know, you have that like beautiful space, like everything's kept in order, like, but Very at the clean. same time you have, you have phenomenal <laughs> training to get some of the best nice. training around. Yeah. So that, that's definitely what we're looking for. And I feel on Long Island and in New York, that's a pretty unique thing. There's not many other gyms that have that. So we want to definitely provide a, a positive experience for the students beyond just getting good training on the mat, which is truthfully, in my opinion, number one, but 
also like if a brand new person walks in, there's no experience, they're going to get like a positive, they're going to get a positive experience at the gym. They're going to get beginner friendly instruction. They're going to get that like welcoming feel and, and they're going to feel like they're in a clean, safe, professional space while mm-hmm. getting that training on the mats at the same time. So what is the philosophy mission statement for uh, Vanguard Academy? So we eventually want to have a few locations in the Suffolk County area mm-hmm. and hopefully build, um, obviously, we want to build a large community of people in the in jiu-jitsu that kind of subscribe to our way of, I don't want to say our way, but kind of subscribe to our style of jiu-jitsu. You know, obviously, we're a little bit leg lock heavy, but we have like a no-gi, like submission-oriented style. And we kind of want to, I don't want to say spread that, but we want to we want people to you know, kind of adopt our style, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, yeah. And we want to have a few locations. We want to have a big competition team. And you know, we want to be an East Coast powerhouse on the competition team while also fostering that friendly and I don't want to say hobbyist, but like, you know, jujitsu for everyone while also having that, that competition team at the same time. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, people have told me, you know, Jason is very, very well known for his leg game and the Dan her background, obviously. And when I hear things like that, I always get a little bit concerned that someone is only being sort of referred to in a one particular way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, so uh, I'm curious, you know, are there aspects of your game or Vanguard's game? You know, this is a bit of a softball here, but it's it's, it's more than just the leg game, right? Yeah, it's more I than mean, heel hooks. anyone that that tra- has trained with me or trains with me currently, or you ask any of like the high level guys that have come through, like they'll tell you, like I know a lot more than leg locks, and that's definitely what I'm known for in competition. That's most of what my wins have come from, partially because I feel people are generally less experienced in that. But I mean, we have like a pretty detailed curriculum that emphasizes like all aspects of jujitsu. You know, I mean, like very heavy on bar passing, staying on top and like progressing to the back and mount and like being very offensive in those dominant positions and being very effective in those positions. And, and leg locks are definitely important and, you know, part of my game and part of my students' games. But like there's a big emphasis on a lot of other things as well. And, you know, watching me compete, you may not see those things. And that's partially because of what I said earlier about you know, feeling like that's why I have a big advantage against other people, but also... From like a personal perspective, I, you know, I I don't feel like I compete up to my ability, and oftentimes I, I'm not confident enough to use those other tools that I'm very good at and very refined with in the competition sense. But in the training room and from a teaching perspective, like I have excellent guard passing knowledge and ability, excellent finishing ability, mount back, you know, all other positions, and excellent knowledge of all facets of jujitsu. Do you see like issues at each belt level, general issues or general themes that seem to be reoccurring at different belt levels? That's a good question. So I would say to me, I don't even want to say like label it at different belt levels. Because to me, like, you know, especially these days, you could have a blue belt who's put in an exorbitant amount of time and is, you know, maybe another gym's brown belt or like is the equivalent of a, you know, a, a... I don't want to say hobbyist, but a 20-something blue belt who trains every day, you know, a 40-something brown belt, whatever. But I would say as a a white belt, I think the biggest issue people run into is just like being able to decipher which position they're in and what they should be doing in that position. So as a beginner, like am I in post guard, half guard, knee shield, side control, mount, like, and, and kind of like laying out like the map like okay i'm in the, like because you can't make a decision if you don't know where you are what you what you should be doing i'm like okay i'm in this position like you don't have to know a bunch of different op- options no one or two options in all those positions i know a couple of guard passes a couple of 
of movements from side control. I know how to get out of mount. I know how to get out of the back. I know how to capitalize on the back. I would say that that would be like a complete white belt repertoire. And I think at blue belt, people kind of know those things, but then they don't know how to piece all those things together. And I'm sure this is, I don't want to say it's a cliche. I'm sure it's said a lot, but I remember at blue belt feeling like I knew a lot of different moves, but like I had trouble like combining those sequences together. Like I knew I was like, oh, I know this cool X-Guard sweep. And then I know this like Deli Heva sweep. Like, but how do I, how do I make those two work together? And I think that's where at Blue Belt, that's the main issue is people, like at White Belt, you're kind of learning, I don't want to say you're learning generic things, but most White Belts don't have a, a style yet. And at Blue Belt, I think you kind of learn all these moves and you have all this large repertoire of moves. And it's about how do I combine them together and figure out what movements are going to work for me and my body type, my personality, which ones do I like? And that from there, the person's going to start to put together a game. And as they progress, they progress to purple. They're kind of developing that game for themselves. And as they you know, move from purple, brown, and black, you're just you know, adding on to that and kind of rounding yourself out in a way. Like, you, know, you see, for example, a purple belt who has a, maybe a really good Delhi guard, like some good bullfight passing, good finishing on the back. And they could do it to like brown or black belt level you know, practitioners, but they can't get out of side control. They don't know anything from... They only know how to finish on the back. They don't know any on-lock combinations or, or anything like that. They can't finish from mouth. They're only good at a few pathways. And I think as you you move up the ranks, you increase the number of pathways you have to get to that end goal while also improving on the things that you're already, already good at. So hypothetically, I'm a new student, white belt. I'm walking into Vanguard for my first time. What can I expect? So you would expect to be put in a, in a pro, uh, skill appropriate class. That's one thing. So I feel a lot of gyms, they kind of, and, and this is, there's a few reasons for this. They kind of sometimes have like a, a situation where they mix everybody together and like, you know, put all skill levels together. But as a, as a beginner, we have a dedicated fundamentals program with curriculum that's like reflective of what, who's brand new should be learning. And it's going to kind of introduce them to jujitsu in like a safe, fun way for them. And then progress them to a point where they, they can then take mixed level and eventually advanced classes. So like also, so I think it's a few things. Like obviously we want to make competent grapplers, people who are, who are skilled in jiu-jitsu. I think that's important. But also I think it's important to give people a positive experience as well. So I think there's has to be a little bit of a blend. Like if you go like, you know, all in one of those directions, I think you're going to lack in the other. That makes sense. So giving people a good experience, like a welcoming experience where they feel like, they're part of something, part of a team, part of like a community, but also teaching them solid jiu-jitsu at the same time and, and preparing them to like not just train for a week, but train for 10, 15 years, the rest of their lives, hopefully. Hmm. So we talk about a lot of the things that you wanted Vanguard to be. You've been all over the place and to several different academies. What did you want Vanguard not to be? I didn't want it to be the gym, uh, a little bit what I talked about before, but I, I didn't want it to be a gym that that was like lacking. So to me, there's there's kind of three main pillars that make it, that can make up a martial arts gym. So you have like the quality of the training, quality of the instruction, quality of the training. You have the the culture and the community, and then you have the the business side of it, which is like how efficiently it's run. And I think most jujitsu gyms are lacking in in some of those. Like there's some gyms that have a phenomenal level of instruction, phenomenal level of training, but the place is dirty. But they don't they don't charge half the people. They don't or Maybe everyone's paying, but it's very clicky. It's very, um, I don't know what the word is, but it's just not a, it's not a friendly, fun atmosphere where, hmm. where somebody who's brand new is feeling welcome or where there's 
things like instructors sleeping with students or, you know, all, all that type of stuff, your sexual Absolutely. harassment, anything like yeah. that. So I want like a safe community driven, like atmosphere while having the high level training and also having the business side of things tied up. So to go back to your original question, what do I not want Vanguard to be? I, I don't want Vanguard to play to be a place that lacks any of those things. Mm. So I, those three main pillars are something that are, that is important to be maintained uh, throughout the gym as we grow and as we progress as, as a gym and community. Like it's important that those things are maintained. And the bigger you get, obviously, the, the harder that can become. But that's something that's very important. When people sound that out, you know, and a lot of people haven't, I would say a lot of academy owners haven't really had that conversation with themselves. But um, those that have, they find, you know, and I've observed it too, it's that's incredibly challenging to, you know, spend all three plates, you know, like that. Yeah, definitely. I think on a personal level, I think from the background of where I've trained and the people I've trained with, I think like maintaining the high level of training is is probably the easiest. Um, I will say at Sarah's, like the atmosphere is probably one of the best communities I've ever seen at a gym. I've, I've really only trained it. You know, I've trained at Sarah's, always right. trained at Sarah's, I've trained at Henzo's, but you know, right. I've always been Matt Sarah guy. You know, that's been my yeah. always been my home gym, but I've been to many, many gyms and Sarah's is like some of the best community and culture I've ever, I've ever seen at a gym. So like, I, I feel like coming from there kind of, you know, follow suit fairly well. And just like making sure the business side of things is all tied up, had having worked mm-hmm. there for so long, I think, you know, not that that's easy by any means, but I think I have the right guidance and the right idea of what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, there's lots of, uh, there's a ton of students out there, even higher belt students out there that have no or very little experience in the leg game still to this day. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give them in terms of just fundamentally beginning that journey? So I would say, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of resources online right now. I would say, I mean, I'm, I don't want to tell these people you have to go buy instructional, but I think <laughs> hey, if the, it means that though, the thing is like with that, you're right, but there's, it's disparate information, you know what I yeah, mean? It's yeah. not like a, there's not like a, a path, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say, especially if you're at a gym where that knowledge is not readily available, I mean, that is certainly a very good option is, uh, is, is using one of the many instructionals out there to, you know, to help you with that. But I would say it, it's, it's very similar in the sense to, I don't want to say like starting over as white belt, but like a lot of the concepts you're taught that, you know, overall in jujitsu, like they don't necessarily apply the same way to leg locks. So they do, but in a different way, like there's like the same way in, in, you know, I don't want to say a regular jujitsu is all jujitsu, but same way there's a, a positional hierarchy of like, you know, I open the guard, I go to half guard, I go to side control, I mount, I take it back. There's a similar hierarchy in leg locking in terms of where your leg position is relative to your opponent's legs. And just like kind of going back to what I said about white belts, the first thing when I, you know, when I teach, teach a lot of private lessons and I've taught many people who say, I don't know anything about leg locks. I want to work leg locks. The first thing I teach them is, is the, 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 all the positions I teach them, whatever you want to call it, single leg X, standard Ashi, outside Ashi, 50, 50 saddle or inside Sinkaku. I mean, whatever, what are repositions? I teach them all the positions. And mm-hmm. like, if you can't identify where you are, like you're going to have same as a white belt. If you don't know I'm mounted or someone has my back, you're not going to know what to do. So that's the first thing is being able to identify these major positions. And obviously within those positions, there's like sub variants of all those positions and I can get very confusing. So what I tell people is like, if someone, if you're attacking a hill or someone's attacking a hill on you, they can either have, or the leg can be on the outside or the inside. So you can be an outside heel or inside heel. So depending on which side of their body, the leg is on, you know, that's going to 
that's going to determine that. And their legs can be locked on the inside, they can be on the outside, or they can be open in some ways. And when I kind of break it down like that, it starts to make sense. And all these names of all these positions is just giving names to where your opponent's legs are and where your foot is relative to their body. So understanding the positions first and then kind of working from there, you know, like in the positional aspect, just what is this position good for? Okay. I'm in half bar. Like, is that good for like strangling somebody? Probably not. It's good for pinning their shoulders down and extracting the leg. And, and it's the same way with like lots, like all the leg positions have like things they're good at, things they're not so good at and things you're going to transition to from there. So I think kind of breaking it down the same way is very helpful. And that's usually how I do it to or how I explain it to people when they first start to learn. I heard someone once say something about inclusion in that it's one thing to have a seat at the table. It's another to feel that you actually belong at the table. How do you maintain the culture of Vanguard? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. I think it all comes from, you know, the top. So it can be a little challenging. I don't want to say challenging. Like it's just something I have to, we have to stay on top of, especially because we have a lot of students that kind of have been my students for a while, you know, having, having been at Sarah's. And so we kind of had like a little bit of a group of people that already knew each other. And then you have new people coming in and just kind of making sure that those people kind of at the top who are the senior students are, are kind of dissipating that through the ranks. We'll say like a hierarchy, obviously is going to come from me and Nick, but like making sure those people are aware of that and making sure they're aware of what our goal and our mission is. So those like higher ranked students who are sometimes teaching the other classes or who the lower ranked students look up to can kind of dissipate that and, and kind of, you know, create that inclusiveness. Because I think especially in jujitsu, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, there's definitely a hierarchy. It's kind of, I think, you know, and any environment like this is going to be like that. And I think generally, generally speaking, people kind of defer to the, to that hierarchy. And if you can kind of bring that from the top down, that inclusiveness and that welcoming feeling and kind of making f- people feel like they're a part of something special. I think, I think you're going to have success doing that. So definitely coming from the top, but also kind of including, you know, the, the senior students in that process as well. How do you uh, deal with students who are a concern? I mean, you could talk to them. I, I think it, uh, you know, it depends on what the situation is exactly. But having been at maths for a while, you know, that's always been something that's been a potential issue. And I think it, depending on the level of the student, I think as a school owner, asking somebody to leave is, you know, I've had a few people tell me from an advice perspective, like kick people out when you need to and don't be afraid to do that. Like that person's, mm-hmm. you know, money is not is not worth the disruption the culture of your school or you know conversely you're not the right product for them right yeah of course of course yeah and then that's i think that's how you need to present it is hey this is not the right place for you like we're not right for you this is not a right fit but not that you're bad you're not good or anything like that just i don't think we're offering what you need and vice versa now i know in the past you did some privates with with john danaher what did you get from those I got a lot. I I told I I took a lesson with him every week for over a year. So wow. I got a lot from it. Especially when I first started going there, you know, all, all the systems you kind of, you know, he released all those instructionals, all those like systems he's kind of taught. Like at first, I learned a lot of those. Like I learned like the whole armbar system, the cross gripping, trapping the arm system from the back, back triangle system, the Morris system. You know, all these movements that I still do a lot today. I learned a lot 
a lot of those from him in those lessons specifically. Because at the time, like I would obviously take classes, but uh, my classes were excellent, but those things were not always the topic. So he kind of, I would say, and he, I wouldn't even pick what the, which I kind of liked a lot. I wouldn't even pick what the lesson was. He said, we're going to work on this today. And he just teach us a lesson. And it kind of filled me in on all those things that like, you know, the squad will say was like kind of up to date on at the time. The things that mm-hmm. I had kind of started there later, like Warden Gary and a lot of those guys. So it kind of like filled me in on all those things. It got me almost up to speed with like the terminology of what all, not even the terminology, but how to operate all of those positions. You guys, I assume, have a kids program, right? We do. Yes. How do you deal with parents that are like too involved? So we have uh, two age groups. We have four to seven and then eight to 13. So I actually taught the kids program at Sarah's for a while, probably seven years or so. Mm. So that that was definitely something I kind of always dealt with. Mm. Parents that were overly involved. We actually had, this is many years ago, when I was a purple belt teaching the kids, we had a bunch of like pretty serious kids competitors and they actually all ended up leaving and going to all different gyms because they all could not get along together. Wow. And yeah, it was a, it was a little bit of a, it was, it was some drama at the time. This is many years ago, yeah. but I think in jujitsu, it's, it's a little interesting because if I was coaching football, you know, kids football, let's say, you know, you have parents on the side who they're sideline coaches, they're giving their kid advice or saying all these things. And like, truthfully, they may have some knowledge of this. And especially if I'm coaching youth kids, uh, maybe I don't really know what I'm doing that much, but in jujitsu, like the parent definitely doesn't have the knowledge that I have or anywhere close. So I think, um, Generally, they're less likely to do that, I feel. And, and again, I'm not dealing with any, at this point, at least, I'm, I don't have any super high level kids competitors. So you know, when, maybe when it gets to that point, you know, and parents are hyper involved with the kids' progress, maybe things will change a little bit. But you know, I'm teaching a class, parents on the side, they're not, you know, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And if they do, like there have definitely been times since we opened where you know, every parent's trying to talk to their kid. And I'll say, guys, parents, please just don't say anything. Like sit on the mm-hmm. side and watch. You want to talk to your child after class, but you know when they're on the mat, they're with me right now. And I think I think a lot of it comes from just if their child is not doing something right, they want to like instill that discipline on them. And I'm sure eventually I will have to deal with that the type of parent who is you know pushing their child to a point where it's like disrupting the rest of the room. But we only started the kids mid September, so every all the kids are very new at this point. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had to deal with much in that sense, but I definitely know where that kid that can get to. Mm-hmm. So I'll assume Matt was sort of your model, your prime primary model for teaching. Was there ever a big sort of a moment where you just changed your teaching altogether? Where you're like, this is an aha moment for my teaching? You know, obviously I've been under Matt forever, but definitely when I started going to Henzo Gracie Academy and I kind of saw Dana, her style of teaching, that mm-hmm. definitely had an effect on me. And I feel like I I feel like so Matt as an instructor is a phenomenal instructor, but he kind of gets the point across in a very like basic digestible fashion, which I, I really like it as mm-hmm. a, like me too. Yeah. As, as like what a lot of people have told me as an instructor is that like the way I you know provide content is very digestible, which I think is an important trait. So when I started going to the city training under Danaher, just being there, you kind of start to pick up on his kind of mannerisms as an instructor. And I kind of like, as you, I'm sure you've heard, like people use like all the same terminology that he uses, like using all the Japanese names and you kind of start to become like that. And I kind of remember seeing that happening and kind of stopping myself and trying to kind of move back more towards the 
way Matt was teaching. Not to say, I mean, Dan, our phenomenal instructor, obviously is the best coach in the world of the sport, mm-hmm. but it was kind of like not becoming my own, if that makes sense. Yeah. So sure. I kind of, you know, while still giving like those hyper detailed explanations, like John does, like try to present it in a very digestible way, like Matt does mm-hmm. at the same time. So now you've like found your own voice, so to speak. Yeah, kind of, yeah a exactly. Like a comedian, like a, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I, you know, when I first started, would try to teach like Matt and, you know, as I went to Henzo's would kind of, sure. and, and not even on purpose, like you just, you know, you don't know how to teach you model yourself after these people and kind of like found a little bit of a hybrid, you know, right. found my own voice. Improving your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ. And as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB, to get 20% off your subscription, yogaforbjj.net. What do you wish you were better at? Definitely wrestling. That's something that I, I, I'm working pretty hard on right now. I do it every day in, in practice, but definitely something I wish I was better at. And I will say, uh, definitely having the knee surgeries didn't help that progression. There was times where like I want, like this last ADCC trials, like I wanted to work it more, but I was not that long out of surgery. And for knee surgery, that's like the worst thing, at least for me to do is practice wrestling. So that definitely, I was never like, it's definitely something I didn't work on even at the beginning and I should have worked on more, but something I'm working on hard now. I have uh, Kyle Sermonara trained at my gym. He uh, trained at Hensel's for many years, but he was uh, he was on the uh, US world team for freestyle wrestling. So he's actually, he's good friends with Gordon. He goes out to Texas and trains with them sometime. He was, you know, he was helping Gordon a lot with wrestling. Um, his wife actually fights in the UFC. Uh, Caitlin Chikagian, Bond Fighters, and she trains at our gym also, but he helps me out a lot. So I've kind of found, um, always with wrestling, I kind of didn't like back to our conversation. Like I kind of knew a bunch of moves, but I didn't really have a game that I was developing. And like recently over the past six months, I kind of really kind of developed a little bit of a, a system for like stuff that I think works for me in wrestling and specifically using underhooks from the from standing. And I've had good success with it. Uh, that's something I'm working hard on right now. It's something I wish I was better at, but you know, better late than ever. <laughs> right, right. Where do you want your game to go? I mean, I, I certainly want to you know, obviously keep progressing every way I can. I'm pretty happy with most of my game. Not to say there's not things I, I can work on, of course, but I feel pretty confident in most positions, whether I'm passing, my guard, submission escapes, attacking submissions. Really, my main focus is is right now is is for ADCC. So a big emphasis on that is obviously the wrestling, but also turtle offense or attacking the back and the turtle mm. defense. Just because of the way the scoring works, being very, very competent in the turtle position, like defensively and offensively is very, very important. So that's a big emphasis right now. On top, Obviously on top of the wrestling, but even, and I didn't really understand this fully because I, I had done the ADCC trials. So I did the most recent ones, the most recent one for, for this past ADCC, but the one before that I did as well. And I took second and I didn't really have a good understanding of the rules in the final. I lost in the finals to Johnson Tava, who's a who actually owns a school or owned a school in Long Island. He just moved recently, yeah. but I think if I had a better understanding of the rules, I would have won that match. And I didn't really understand the rules. And now I have a good understanding, and you know I understand how important this turtle, how important turtle position is. Obviously, with the yeah. wrestling too, but you can kind of negate a good wrestler by having really good turtle defense because in ADCC the takedown, sweep, whatever doesn't count unless you put the person on their back or take their back. So having good awareness and defense in that position is very important. So that's a big emphasis for myself and all my students right now, especially the ones with competitive aspirations for ADCC this year. That's so fascinating. I love that you brought up the turtle. I think you're the only, maybe the second professional that I've heard talk about turtle in a serious perspective. 
so I think uh, there's a few things. So definitely watching wrestling, watching freestyle wrestling, college wrestling, the way, well, not so much freestyle. So we'll, we'll break this down into a few positions. You have like a rear body lock position, which is a standing position. So I'm behind you. If I could put your hands on the mat, hands and knees on the mat, we would then be internal. So studying, because in freestyle wrestling, there's no real bottom position. It's just about not getting, not getting turned. So studying how guys put people down from there and a collegiate wrestling or folk style, how guys stand up from that position and get out mm-hmm. and how guys on top control that position. Because the way, the way jujitsu guys operate in, which is basically referee's position. If you watch wrestling, you know, it's not identical, yes. but the same yeah. idea, the way wrestlers operate in that position is very different than the way jujitsu guys operate. Like a standard way people teach jujitsu is put a seatbelt in, roll, take the back from there. But when the person's trying to stand up, that doesn't work. And mm-hmm. so looking at the types of controls wrestlers use in that position, like cross wrist, tight waist. And, and I will say it can differ a little bit because in wrestling, you can't lock your hands. It's a class. You can't lock your hands around the waist. So, you know, th- there's certain things available to us that's not available to them. But looking at the way wrestlers control people in that situation and hold somebody down, I think is very pertinent for ADCC. So that's something I watch a lot. And then on the flip side of things, wrestlers standing up out of that position. He's being able to get out of that, you know, primarily in ADC situation, you're going to be looking at back up. So, you know, who better to watch than collegiate wrestlers standing up from, from that mm. position? So I would say there's more emphasis on me watching that than actual jujitsu guys. Because I think this position, this is, I don't want to use the term, it's the meta, but for ADCC, this is like an evolving position. I think the, the way you're going to see guys defend it, this coming in ADCC is going to be more intricate and more detailed and more involved than it was this past ADCC. The same way from 2019 to 2022, guys were significantly better at it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an evolving position. I certainly watched you know, many, many past ADCC matches. Uh, looking at that position, but you know, I think uh, looking to collegiate wrestlers is probably one of the best things you can do to develop that right now. Yeah. And then, like, obviously, applying the jujitsu concepts into that. Like, ultimately, mm-hmm. you want to take the back of two hooks and you're going to score, and you know, just keeping those things in in mind when working on it. Yeah, a lot of those guys, a lot of the wrestlers too, they're not even giving you a seatbelt. They're not even giving you that that space between you know the elbow and the torso and oh, things like that. So when you yeah, talk about seatbelt, there is no seatbelt. Yeah, there is no seatbelt. A big thing wrestlers talk about is staying behind the elbows. So, you know, if I put a seatbelt in, like that inside elbow is, is technically free. And a lot of times just because you guys lose the position, even if they do lock the seatbelt. So that, that's an important concept for sure. What is your favorite rule set? That's a good question. I really like, I mean, so at, at this point, I think everything's moving towards ADCC. So mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's my favorite rule set, but mm-hmm. I, I do like, uh, I like the fight to win rule set a lot. Like the all subs legal with like a ref's decision. I think that's pretty, um, you know, you kind of base it off how the UFC is not to say the judges are always fair, but impartial judges. I think that's a pretty good rule set. You know, I do think from a, a spectator perspective, I think like ADCC is exciting because it forces a lot of the wrestling. Although I do feel that, and I, I don't see this changing, but I I do feel, for example, if you sweep somebody and that person turtles, that not being scored, I think is kind of ridiculous. To me, that's a score. If you take someone down and they turtle, it's not scored, but that's the way the rules are. It does force those like exciting turtle scrambles and makes turtle such a valuable position versus if that was a score, turtle fucking goes <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an important <laughs> position. You know, it's purely like the rule set that makes it like that. But mm-hmm. I don't want to say I don't like ADCC rules. The majority of people that I ask, no one ever brings up ADCC to be their favorite rule yeah, set. It's, it's not my favorite rule. It's I, my I don't favorite. think it's, it's anyone's favorite. favorite rule set. Yeah. I think it does make for exciting. I mean, I will say ADCC is very exciting, you know, especially this year. And there's plenty of, you know, fight to win matches that are super boring. I think on a personal level, I like the fight to win rule set. If I was to compete under a rule set, I think I'm a little partial here because as a competitor, like, uh, you know, I, I'm more thinking like what rule set do I think I'm going to win on? So, but from a fan perspective, I got to say it was extremely enjoyable to watch ADCC this year. 
I think partially because of those rules where you see those, you know, crazy turtle scrambles, like, and it creates constant movement. Like you get your guard pass, you get swept, you're always moving in the turtle. Like you're not accepting those positions at all. So you, you brought up ADCC, your thoughts on the last ADCC? I thought it was excellent. It was in so many levels. The production value was incredible. There's 14,000 people there. It's unbelievable. You know, the the quality of the competition was excellent. You know, there was so many, um, which is, you know, for the sport, I think is really good in the sense that there were so many upsets, we'll say upsets where yeah. like, I think the playing field is starting to even out a little bit, which is, which is, what do you mean? So in the sense that, like, obviously you have Gordon is at the top, but it, in many of the other divisions, like, for example, at 77 kilograms, JT Torres, returning champion, lost to PJ Barch, right. you know, and which I think many people would not have picked. I think many people picked JT. Huge upset. That, yeah, huge, huge upset. upset. I yeah. think, but obviously looking at the match, you're like, you know, PJ won decisively, but, yes, you know, in, in hindsight, but or John Carlo beating Mateus Denise at 88. You know, his performance yeah. was unbelievable. I think yeah. uh, a lot of the... People slept on John Carlo. I think a lot of the, um, the I don't want to say wild cards, but a lot of the, the people who got invites based on their trials performances, either because they won the trials or placed in the trials, did exceptionally well. Like, yeah. P, I mean, PJ is an example. You know, he mm. he took third twice, so he got a, he got an invite for for taking third, and you know, he he took he ended up taking fourth in ADCC overall. He beat the returning mm. champion. Um, there was a number of people like that. Uh, the European and Australian trials winners or, or invitees did very very well. Mateusz Zajinski. You know, submitted uh, Will Tackett, which is a huge win. Yeah. Uh, Owen O'Flanagan took fourth, which is a huge win. I mean, yeah, he won fantastic. the trials, but you know, traditionally the Asian and the and the European trials winners usually don't do that good. Sam McNally beat Gary Conan. So I think you're seeing the the skill level kind of rise, but start to even out to a certain extent, um, which is, I think, for any sport, that's good. That's what you want. You don't want, you know, whether it's Americans or Brazilians or people from one team dominating the whole sport. That's not, in the long run, that's not good for the sport. Do you have a typically a game plan going into competition? Yeah, definitely, for sure. Again, depends on the rule set, depends on who, who I'm competing against. And I think it's something that sometimes I wouldn't do, but I think I've like come to realize that I think it's 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 extremely important to game plan for your specific opponent and like trying to figure out where you can bring the match to like you know put yourself in the, in the best place to win. So yeah, uh, you know, if it's a if it's a big tournament, like for example, the ADCC trials, there's 256 people in my division. There's a few people I thought I could face. Mainly I thought I was the number two seed. Jacob Couch was the number one seed. I thought I was going to beat him in the finals. I didn't make the finals. I lost in the round of eight. He lost before that. But that's somebody I watched a little bit of footage on or somebody that I felt like was going to be a touch, tough matchup. Someone like Hunter Colvin, who took second. I was like, you know, watching him a little bit. But if it's a super fight or a single match, definitely, definitely game planning. You know, definitely watch that person's. It's not even so much, um, obviously, you want to know what moves they're going to do, but simple things like which leg they lead with, which side they pass to, like stuff like that, I think can give you uh, some good insights on what movements you should be doing or, or what game you should be playing. And just kind of looking at that person's movement, it kind of gets you used to that, like going back to pattern recognition, get, gets you like your brain used to the way that person's moving a little bit. And, you know, you know you're not going to have any surprise if that person does a cartwheel pass or anything like that. At least you know that's, that's in their arsenal. And, you know, you're going to be a little bit quicker to react in that particular mm-hmm. situation. Can you tell me a time you wanted to quit and why? Quit? Maybe after some losses in the moment, I wanted to quit. 
I would say at the last trials, I lost in the quarterfinals and I, I was pretty upset after that. I don't know if I wanted to quit, but I was definitely pretty discouraged, pretty upset, especially being the number two seed in that tournament. I took second a few years ago. I think, I still think I, I'm more than capable of winning that tournament. And, you know, the trajectory of this entire past year would have been, not that I had a bad year by any means, but it, it would have been completely different. You know, I would have been in ADCC. I think there's so no reason I could have had like a, a medalist performance at ADCC this year. So, you know, going from like, like top eight of the trials to potentially that definitely like things when you think about it. And definitely right afterwards, I, I felt like I, right after that loss, I felt like I should not lose that match, but you no, know, it is what it is and only move forward from it. Do you have any feedback for those people that are just sort of, you know, crushed because they're not getting gold and they're entering all these local tournaments and, and it, you know, to a professional, you know, it may not seem like that big a deal, but for them, it's, it's a big deal, right? Of course, I mean, it's of course it is. hundred bucks yeah. for them every time or whatever. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, I could definitely sympathize with feeling that way, you know, regardless of whether you're a professional in this or not, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to put your best foot forward to when you go compete if you decide to compete. So I definitely understand feeling that way. I mean, I think the first thing is is identifying. And I think I think a lot of people in general don't have like an honest like assessment of themselves. Like, are you getting completely worked in your matches? Are you getting killed? Like, okay, like let's take a step back. Maybe you're in the role. Are you are you overweight? Maybe you're in the wrong weight class. Maybe you know you're competing in your age group. Like that's kind of the first thing I would ask someone. Like, oh, I'm, I'm 46. I competed in the adult division. Like, okay, like maybe we'll do the master's division first. Like try to <laughs> try to work up to that. I'm not saying you can't do the adult division, but you no, know, but if the person's having close matches, you know, losing 4-2, losing by a sweep. Not that that's like easier to deal with, but it's like, okay, like you got swept, you got submitted with this, like, let's focus on that. Like, let's focus on the technical errors and how to, how to deal with that. And even if you lost a really bad match, you know, you got killed, like, okay, this person passed through guard this way. Let's work on how to not, how to not deal with that. And that's, that's definitely something I got from working with John Danaher a lot. Mm -hmm. Just, okay, like maybe this sucks. This doesn't feel good, but like, what can we do? Like you lost by head and arm choke. Let's work your head and arm choke defense. That's the first thing. Let's get a solid defensive option from there. Do you know what to do there? Uh, I have no idea. Okay, let's work on that first and work on tangibly what is going wrong in those situations. Like, what is that person doing to you? What did you try to execute that didn't work? You know, I almost had a stack pass. I almost had this. Let's work on those things. And that's what you can do. Like, and certainly like back to training, like keep training hard, like do those things you were doing, but address the problem. Much like if you were training and you went for something and it didn't work, address the problem. This is what's going wrong. What can we do to fix that? And then then moving in that direction. How do you even discover these deficiencies? How do you identify these things? So going back to a little bit we talked about before, how does like one get better in jujitsu or how, how does what makes a good student is when you're training, and this can be hard when you first start, but being able right. to being conscious of what's happening. And this is not to like knock a student, but as an instructor, unless I'm watching this particular moment, if you come to me, like say, Hey, I went for a stack pass. It didn't work. Like that's, that's a very broad question, right? Like I went for a stack pass. Okay. What were you doing? I, I put my hand on the collar and then I grabbed the pants and then the person pushed my elbow. Like, okay, we can work that. Well, your elbow's a little far from your ribs. Let's get your elbow a little tighter. Let's drill this a few times. It looks better already. Like next time that's less likely to happen. But if somebody is, yeah, like I was trying to pass the guard and it didn't work. Oh, well, and what were you trying to do? I don't know. That's very hard to, to diagnose and correct. Obviously, if you have footage, your instructor can watch that footage and, and help you and say, okay, you did this wrong right here. But generally when a student, and I try to 
not in a mean way, but try to impart this on my students. Like, if, like when you ask a question and it can be hard to recall a role you had, that's why I encourage people to videotape when they can or try to be in the moment and conscious in the moment. It's important that you have a specific grasp of what is, and you may not know the solution, but a grasp of what you're trying to do and what is happening to prevent from doing that. Even if you don't know why that's happening or what you need to do to fix that, because that's the only way we can fix the problem is if we can, you know, because truthfully, as you know, jujitsu is very detailed, very specific. If you're trying to do something like, you know, we need to know what specifically you're trying to do and that's going to help us fix that. So I think as somebody that's maybe newer or trying to improve in certain areas, I think it's important that you're becoming aware of where things are going wrong and identifying that. And then you can move towards finding a solution. Your thoughts on the belt system, does it make a lot of sense anymore? It's rather subjective as it is. It's sort of a general gauge, it seems like. Your thoughts on it, should it change or what? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know if it should change, but I think I think having pro-level tournaments is, and, and you see this all the time, when there's a tournament for money on the line, there's a lot of times from blue belt to pro belt to black belts during it. And, and then like the belt is not going to necessarily determine who's going to win that. But I think ultimately, I think having some type of pro division, you know, especially I guess in like a, a gi tournament, I guess you can do that where people are different belt colors. But I think ultimately that's what it is. The people that are, are like that level are usually professionals or on their way to becoming mm-hmm. professionals. So I think treating them like such is important for sure. Even something like the trials, for example, like the ADCC trials is open to everybody. And, you know, they have to cap it at 256 people per division now. I think even having some type of qualifying system to get into that, maybe the top 64 guys or something, you know, I, the infrastructure is on a place to do that now, but having like multiple ADCC open, like like the IBJJF does for the Black Belt World, you need some points. Yeah. Like so, I think something like that on a broader scale to do a lot of these tournaments. And then in your local, you know, in your local now, or good fight or, or any of those you know tournaments like you leave the bell system the way it is but like these more like prestigious tournaments and like some of them are doing have some have some type of you know qualification process or you know some type of invite process or, or something along those lines and again we're not in a universal rule set it's like there's there's you know three or four kind of major rule sets it's a little hard to, to kind of do that at this point but it's it's messy right yeah, now it yeah. seems like we're still in the leather helmet stage of this thing yeah i agree but I think the belt system from, you know, from the perspective of truthfully, most people that do jiu-jitsu are not professionals. Like most people are, you know, it's a, from a hobby to a serious hobby for them. And I think having the belt system is important. I think it, you know, it adds that sense of progression for people. And, and I think we would not have as many people in the sport as we do right now if we didn't, we didn't have that belt system. Yeah, you know, I remember, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I'm a black belt already, but, you know, ultimately I want to get better. Like, you know, and, and once most people, once they get to like high blue, purple belt, they kind of feel that way. Like they're not as concerned with the belts. But I remember being a white belt, and, you know, obviously I wanted to get better, but like the validation of getting a stripe or getting my blue belt, like how it felt at the time. And I, I would say, you know, I would say blue belt felt to me the best, like felt like that's what gave me the most the most validation and as it progressed i started to care less about that but you know i don't think you would have as many people in the sport if you didn't have that kind of process right there and, and it is i will say um you know getting a black belt regardless of your level of seriousness like it is a monumental achievement for anybody mm-hmm. that's a massive you know you're most people are, you're looking at a 10-year process and 
I think I think just rewarding people for that is a nice thing. And I think it's really, truly an accomplishment. I mean, how many people can say they put 10 years into something like that? So I, I don't think get rid of it, but I think having, you know, more, uh, having pro, di- really pro divisions at tournaments, you know, and I don't know how they would do that in IBJJF with the Gi. I know it's a little weird having like people, different colored belts competing against each other, but I mean, there's no reason Kolobot, not in the black cup division, right? He's obviously at, at that level. That's interesting. You mentioned that. I don't know. Jay Page has brought that up as well. He said, you know, maybe at some point, you know, we have some sort of professional belt track as well yeah, you know, to yeah. designate the difference between the two. Because it does seem like even the the concept of the professional now is sort of a newish kind of thing. In yeah, jiu-jitsu. for sure. It seems like um, ADCC sort of is this, you know, obviously these guys are professional, but like it's rather nebulous. You know, what is a professional jujitsu practitioner at this point it's probably those that are what fighting primarily in the money the invitational things as you mentioned adcc etc right yeah yeah i mean truthfully if the sport can get big enough having something like the ufc or some you know competitive division like that with different weight classes you know if you make it to the ufc obviously you know there's no doubt you're a professional in that sport and there's obviously levels of professional before that but you know, and it's interesting. That's kind of what one is doing right now. One FC is doing mm, with, yeah. with grappling right now. It's not on that scale, but but it's kind of interesting. You know, as a jujitsu athlete, if you get signed by one, it's obviously a huge huge deal. I know there's some exclusivity things; they can't do certain events, and that turns some people off. But it seems like they're trying to create that. And I think that's you know it's, that's interesting. I think uh, I think ultimately down the line, I think that's what it should look like. And I think that's mm. what's going to be the best for the sport. So that's like your projection of the future of jujitsu. Yeah, uh, maybe not my projection, but but maybe see, it's weird because then you have this ADCC every two years, like or maybe eight. So obviously, you know who Mo Jassim is. I'm sure he is working on some conceptual idea for this. Maybe ADCC will sign athletes and they'll they'll have an ADCC pro uh, something something like that. Because I know they're doing these ADCC opens. I think they're mm-hmm. starting in April. They're going to be doing obviously the trials are, are this year in October 14th, I think. But they're going to be doing these ADCC opens every month. So maybe they're going to start like a. I'm sure it's going to be open to everybody, but maybe they'll start like a pro division within that. I don't know, like something mm-hmm. along those lines. I think will happen almost like um almost like a acb a few years ago i mean that wasn't exactly the same thing but it was kind of like a pro only event you know it wasn't like most super fight shows they'll have like a bunch of local you know guys on it and then like at that kind of that last match last few matches maybe we'll have a few pro level guys but mm-hmm. you know kind of like an only pro level event that's but for that to work it needs to be funded by viewership or fan money or something like right. that you know like most tournaments operate on registration fees so Jason, what do you got planned for your future? I know you touched on the expansion of Vanguard, possibly ADCC. Future goal this year is winning the trials in October. If not the first trials, if not the East Coast trials, the West Coast trials, that's for me on a personal level, that's my immediate like priority number one, right? Yeah, yeah. Priority number one and making it to ADCC. Obviously, the gym is really the gym. I'll say it's priority number one. You know, that's uh, that's my livelihood. But uh, preparing my students for for the trials and preparing myself for the trials that's a mm. uh, big priority right now. Growing the gym and like trying to maintain the level of professionalism and training at, and everything that we're, we're trying to uphold and like spreading our community within long island and trying to grow our vanguard community and and whether you're a high level competitor or have aspirations to be a high level competitor or a hobbyist someone just looking to get 
get in shape, try something new. I want to grow that community and maintain the type of community we have right now. That's really important to me. And you know, we can have those people that are high level competitors, but also have people who are, are doing this as a as a hobby. And I think those can all coexist together. One thing I want to ask is if you could touch upon is uh, your instructionals. What do you got available? Yeah, so I have I have three instructionals with BJJ Fanatics. So I have I just released one recently a couple of days ago. That's but right. Congratulations, Chick. Thank you. Thank you. I have a 50-50 instructional. I have a reverse Delahiva instructional, and I have an outside Ash instructional that was just released. So those are all available on BJJFanatics.com. I'm also going to be working with Athletes Ocean. So I don't know if you've heard of this, but this is um this is a new, it's a little bit different of a concept, but it's a app right now. But Jason Nolf. And uh, Gino Morelli are heading it. Uh, they both wrestled for Penn State. You know, Jason Nolf was a multiple-time national champion. And it's, it's almost like a social media type app, but with, with creators on it. So there's going to be like creators and then like just like regular patrons on it. And like it's going to be kind of an instructional database, similar-ish to Fanatics, but like with more of a social media aspect. And I'm not Very exclusive cool. with them. Like I'm still going to work with Fanatics too, but I'm going to probably be shooting instructional with them. I also awesome. have a, pa- a Patreon. So I post weekly technique videos on there rolling videos. So I have that as well. You know, at this point, I probably have 120 videos on there, all different techniques, me training live, stuff like that. So if you're interested, that's a monthly subscription, but I have that as well. Where can we get more information about you and everything that you're doing? So my Instagram is Jason Rao, BJJ89. So if you go on my Instagram, I have a link tree, my bio, it has uh, info to all of that. I post uh, pretty consistent reels at this point, like you know, f- quick 15 to 20 second videos of, I think, pretty digestible, high quality techniques. So if really? you're interested, definitely check that out. That's obviously totally free. I do YouTube? have a YouTube channel. I got to post more, but I posted a breakdown of a Dante Leon match recently. So I plan That's on right. doing more of that. I have a few free techniques on there as well. So expect more from there. Obviously, my Instagram, and you can check out the Vanguard Academy Jiu-Jitsu page as well. So I have an Instagram page for that. It's Vanguard Academy JJ, and then Vanguard and JJ is our website. If you ever want to check out the website, yeah, check me out. You know, feel free to shoot me a message. Everyone, thank you so much for watching, listening out there. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Please give us the whole five stars and thumbs up and subscribes at all the places. And thanks so much for listening to Forever White Belt. And Jason, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. And it's late there my on pleasure. the East Coast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Adolfo. I appreciate it. You bet. See you guys.